How many of you are really very new to meditation? Very new. Okay. If I said breath awareness, if you don't know, haven't had any experience, even if it's just a, a little bit with that, a show of hands, please. So everyone knows pretty much what I mean by attending to the breath. I'm just trying to get a rough indicator of um, can't speak in such a way as to relate to everyone, but we can try. Um, this series, which has gone on for a while, uh, to me is just extremely basic. Uh, not meaning for kindergarten kids, it means it's what the Buddha's teaching is about. It's about self-knowledge, self-knowing. It's uh, something that many, if not most, perhaps all human beings at some point in their life are interested in. Who am I? Uh, begin to examine how we begin to examine how we live. Um, and I've been using the phrase knowing rather than knowledge because it isn't really building up a bunch of information and writing it down. It's not our biography, as fascinating as that may be. Uh, but rather it's a verb, it's knowing, it's something that you do from moment to moment. You're uh, aware. And in the process you begin to see, if you pay attention, that's how you actually live. Underline actually. How do you actually live? Um, in the past, we've gone over some of the basic aspects, and I uh, don't want to review too much. We uh, spent a few sessions on how a crisis like what happened at 9-11, um, in addition to everything else that it is, is an occasion which challenges us and gives us an opportunity to go very, very deeply into ourselves to learn about how we are uh, in a crisis. But it's not just as an idea. It often unearths latent fears or strengths. All kinds of things come up. And so, of course, we spent more time because it was necessary. It's not that it's over, but um, it's just the basic practice. It's not what you, you need anything new. Um, Self-knowledge, self-knowing, to know thyself, as we uh, certainly hear it in Western idiom, very, very important. The last Dharma talk the Buddha gave at his death, just prior to his death, he said, be a lamp unto yourself. And that's a famous quote. Um, but to really know yourself, uh, knowing yourself doesn't happen in isolation. And it's not an abstraction. It happens in relationship. But by relationship, I don't mean to limit that to, let's say, friends, marriage, parents, personal relationship. Uh, we learn about ourselves in relationship to all the aspects of life. What is our relationship to nature? Our relationship to things, to objects. Our relationship to thought, our relationship to silence, our relationship to our emotions. And of course, our relationship to one another. How do we relate? And all of that yields accurate precise information about ourselves if you're willing 
and often if you have the stomach to be able to do it. Because in Dharma circles, we, is a saying, self-knowledge is very often bad news. Eventually, if you stay with it, you get over that. Because it isn't good or bad, it's just news. It shows you about yourself. And the point is not to uh, uh, give yourself a grade or a report card, but it's to understand yourself. Uh, because real happiness, this may be an assumption, probably I take it for granted, I think I do. So uh, don't you, but at least for me, real happiness is not possible if you don't know yourself. Uh, I'm making that an absolute. Obviously, there are degrees. The possibilities for human deception are enormous, enormous. The mind is very, very powerful. And our yearning for certain things to be true and the deep resistance we have to face certain other things, which are also true, but not welcome, is also very, very powerful. And so, relationship. Tonight, I'd like to talk a little bit, <clears throat> get it started at any rate, about our relationship to the body, which is very important in the Buddha's teaching. I'd like to explore it a bit from the Buddha's point of view and uh, try to make it relevant for all of us uh, in this world that we live in right now. Um, first off, a question. Why do we need a teaching for self-knowledge? Who needs the Buddha or anyone else? Why not um, my first Vipassana teacher, a man named Munindra, Munindraji, uh, asked me why I was wanted to do Vipassana meditation. I said, I'd like to get to know myself better. He said, great, just sit down and take a look. Sounds simple. And there's, of course, a lot of truth in it. But uh, it, the knowing doesn't only take place when you sit down. That's what I was trying to say. And why do you need a teacher? Why not just, you have awareness, you're intelligent, you're motivated. Just pay attention. Well, of course you can. Um, but let me ask you, I've asked myself this and flunked completely. Let's take something simple, like just awareness of breathing. The practice where you attend to the in and out breath, which is part of the body. And when other events come up, emotions, thoughts, and so forth, you just let them come and go. You, you stay with the breath. If you're pulled off the breath, you come back to it. Does that sound familiar? Probably to most of you. Uh, I wouldn't have thought... Now, the value of that, those some of you, I look around, some of you have worn out a few cushions been around for a while, so I think you know what I'm talking about. Uh, the value of that is the mind, uh, if you do it, eventually becomes very calm, very steady, clear, there's a lot of joy there, and it's fit to really do self-knowledge. If your mind's all over the place and you say, I believe, I really want to know myself, well, one of the first things that you get to know is that you're not equipped to take much of a look because your mind is um, so scattered. That's not tragic and it's not fatal. That's where we all start. But a simple technique, if you want to call it, by just noticing respiration, just to notice that we're alive and we're breathing. On my own, I wouldn't have thought of it in a million years. If we had a think tank 
with Einstein, you tell me the 20 most brilliant human beings in the history of mankind, or at least, let's say, this century, and we send them off to Palo Alto or to Harvard or MIT, and we gave them big grants and just said, just, they would, I, I have a hunch they would not come up with just be mindful of the breath. Maybe. I doubt it. And there are all kinds of other insights which are very helpful. Now, the Buddha's teaching is especially useful for us, if you're interested in this, because he's not asking you to believe anything that's being said. None of it. It's not a new ideology or a new belief system. It's more akin to a hypothesis, uh, a pointer. Uh, the teachings, the verbal teachings, are pointers to our experience and certain lawfulness that seems to exist in the universe. Okay. Um, the body, in the Buddhist teaching, is an extremely important aspect of the teaching. Now, when you hear about the Buddhist teaching, it's often about the mind. Uh, I was just reading something by a Tibetan Lama a while back, and he was saying, Buddhism is a religion of the mind. Mind here is much larger than just thinking or emotion. It's, it's quite vast, but it includes it. Well then, why do we need the body? And actually some spiritual people conclude that. The body, see the body as an obstacle and uh, weighing us down, not just in various traditions and do all kinds of things to distance themselves from the body, to weaken its hold and so forth. Some of them modernized seem cruel and foolish flagellation and certain attitudes, etc. Um, the teachings point to certain observations, certain patterns, certain lawfulness, some of which is quite obvious, but we don't really want to, it's so obvious we don't pick up on it, or we don't want to pick up on it, or we're unable to. And some of it is not something that on our own we would think of as an idea. But whatever it does, in other words, places like CIMC and the teachings and whatever is going on here tonight, all of that, to me, is pointing, and it's always pointing back to me and to you. Because self-knowing can only happen, each one of us has to do it by ourself. No one can do it for another, no matter how well-meaning you are. Okay, so let's start with the body. The body is... Uh, well, it doesn't sound like the mind. I thought the Buddha's into the mind. But when you get the teaching, you'll see that you can't separate the body from the mind. And it's crucial to be able to understand that and to be able to see the distinction between the mind and the body and how closely related they are, but also how, although they're totally related to one another, they're distinguishable in very important ways. And to understand that makes all the difference between, at times between torment and a happier life. And I'll, I'll try to make that more concrete. We give a tremendous amount of attention to the body. Wouldn't you say? What, it's, what it appears like. We're, you know, we have to learn how to feed it, how to give it sleep, how much it needs. We went into that a little bit in previous weeks. Uh, mindfulness inc can include that. As you pay attention, you start to learn uh, the, the best diet in the world may not apply to you or may need uh, an individual calibration change. So as you pay attention, you learn a lot of things that are helpful in living, 
having to do with how to feed yourself, rest, how much water you need, and so forth. Very, very basic stuff. So we have to feed this body. We spend a lot of time dressing it and rubbing creams and oils and massaging it, acupuncture, acupressure. Uh, quite a, there's a lot of time spent. And then more serious things. If, it get, if it's ill, sometimes it's surgery or radiation. Endless books and tablets and, and herbal formulas and pharmaceuticals to take care of this body. And we talk about it a lot. And we suffer a lot over it. It's too young if you're a teenager. You want your body to be a little older so you can participate in all the wonderful things you think you're missing. And then at a certain, a certain other point, you want your body to be younger. Somehow it's never just right. It's too heavy, it's too thin, uh, my jaw is not right, my, you know. Uh, and there's a lot of suffering. Sometimes bodies don't work uh, perfectly. We're born with a condition where it's not fully adequate, can't fully function. Or as we age, it can be quite poignant. As we start to see certain capacities that were once powerful and strong, a certain kind of fitness, stamina, as we see that inevitably starts to wane. Vision, hearing, memory. All this is happening to everyone. Uh, the culture itself, I don't have to emphasize this, it emphasizes and promotes the importance of having a beautiful, sleek, slim, youthful, attractive body with uh, thighs and and buns that are certain measurement. <laughs> if you do, you're okay. And if you don't, I don't know. It's maybe a colony that we're all shipped to. <laughs> Sorry, your buns are they don't measure up. And sometimes yoga has gotten sucked into that. That's not, of course, the real yoga. And we'll get a little of that tonight. The two main meditation teachings of the Buddha are uh, take it on immediately. And, and they're the Satipatthana Sutra, which has to do with the four foundations of mindfulness, which is uh, the, the core practice that all of us do, no matter what school you're in or what style, because it has to do with learning to be mindful of the body, of feelings, of the mind, and then Anapanasati, which is the same thing only with the breath, and then the lawfulness that regulates the the, the body feelings and the mind itself and all its richness. Uh, so this basic teaching starts with kayanupasana, the contemplation of the body. And the Buddha lists many forms of mindfulness and meditations to help us become acquainted with this body, but in a very special way. It's not a way in which we normally would. So that, let's say, if you're trying to uh, this is within the framework of self-understanding. We're so busy using our body that often we don't fully understand it. And uh, not simply how to care for it in terms of health, but certain aspects of the body which the Buddha hammers away at. Mainly, what the Buddha is concerned about is enabling us to relate to this body. Remember, we have it's about relationship, to learn how to do that so that we don't suffer so much because of our atten at attachment and identification with the body. 
So when the body is a certain way, we're a certain way. When it's a different way, we're a different way. Uh, and tremendous amount of anguish comes from an unexamined relationship of uh, the mind to the body. Kayanupasana, mindfulness of the body, has a very unusual way of being translated into English. So far, no one's come up with a better way of putting it. Uh, what the Buddha is saying in English is the body in the body. That's what the subject of this is, finally. The body in the body. Hmm. What does that mean, the body in the body? It means the raw, pure, naked bodily life. It's not body image. Or there's, it's something that where there's no mind in it. It's just throb, throb, ache, ache. It's the energy, field of energy, which we have come to call my body, the body. Okay. And in order to do that, you, you have to begin to see that you don't do that. If you take uh, this practice, as many as of, of us have, you begin to see that uh, we know the body largely through images we have of it, interpretations we have of it, often which are largely cultural. And to just intimately and directly experience bodily life without any notions about what that is, not any images of what it is, not any explanations or theories, it's just the rawness of uh, that the, the body is alive and feeling that aliveness it's non-conceptual it has nothing to do with ideas zero Okay. some of you have been practicing for a while you know that, it's part of you learn that with the breath you, uh, knowledge of, of respiration or anatomy or physiology is not necessary sometimes it's a hindrance people can't stop visualizing what they think the body is and they're touching a picture of the body which is still the mind and that keeps them from being intimate with the body in the body. The Buddha encourages us to become familiar with, uh, with the breath. Very, very important one. We start with that and spend a lot of time with it because that has such powerful implications. With sitting, very important to learn how to sit in meditation. Whether you sit on a chair or a bench or on the cushion, for most of us it's a new thing to sit down for an extended period of time and not move and to use that utter simplicity to take a look as, as uh, Munindraji pointed out sit down and take a look little by little you can learn so that the body it's, a, it's an asana and the body is both comfortable and stable to begin with it's miserable and unstable those of you who just finished the weekend retreat I see some of you, you know that's true. But uh, it can be re-educated, or it learns. The body learns how to sit if you do it regularly, and of course there are other things that can help it. But the degree to which the body can learn how to sit in a stable, upright way is one contribution to your meditative life. Because as this goes on, many of you are rather new, you may find that you want to sit for hours at a time and I'm not joking, and not because you're trying to set a record or someone is making you. Uh, sometimes people do at different monasteries because you want to, uh, because of the, the joy of seeing deeply into a, a realm that you have not been in touch with before. And it's very helpful if the body uh, can, help, can be a, a, an ally in that 
and it's something that can be learned and there's a lot of help okay and that's always been true since ancient times in india the buddha also uh, encourages us to become familiar or mindful of the body as it sits as it walks even mentions defecating urinating as you bend down as you turn to the right as you turn to the left as you lie down in short to bring mindfulness into every movement of the body throughout the day. And at the time of the Buddha, there were exercises like the monks would uh, walk into town and uh, try to be mindful of, of walking. And then, of course, what's inevitable, probably all of you who've tried know this, uh, at a certain point, your mind spins out and you're somewhere in the future, you're somewhere in the past. And the exercise would be, as you realize, oh, I'm not with the body anymore, I'm not mindful of the body. Uh, where did I lose it? Oh, it was around the bend near the lake by that old tree. So you had to go back to that, to the lake. And the old so uh, I learned this and, uh, when I came back to the States, and I t- would take walks into Harvard Square, and sometimes it would take me almost three hours. You know, it's just, it's a 15 or 20-minute walk, you know. Once you get into the heart of the square, oh, I'm at Aubonpont. Oh, I'm still at Aubonpont. <laughs> Uh, so it was, it was serious. Uh, the emphasis at first is familiarization, to come to know the body this way, not as an idea or as an image, but just the isness of it. Um, other meditations, which are very strange to many of us, have to do with what is called a subha, or the unloveliness of the body, where it's kind of a, a psychic uh, autopsy of a living body uh, where you go through your body and grasp what's inside it. Urine, feces, pus, blood, etc. On and on. It's called the 32 parts of the body. I spent one month with a traditional Thai teacher. That's all I did from early morning to late at night. Breath to calm down and then keep working through the body and amazing things happen. You can get nauseous from what's there, or what you have a sense is there. Well, why do that? Because it's also true that the body is beautiful. It's miraculous. We're more likely to see it that way. But they see it that way, too. Everyone understands that it's an extraordinary... Uh, the, way the, the body is something... It's miraculous. It's not uh, to impugn the body, but to bring balance. Most of us don't have the problem of being non-attached to the body. Now, if you're There are people who are cut off from the body. That's different. That's not meditative life. That's a problem. Whereas if you're, you know, typically in Cambridge, oh, he's in his head too much, you know. And uh, so why don't you take some dance or do some yoga or, you know, run something. You know, you got to stop thinking for a few minutes. I don't mean that. Um, The tendency overall is more to glamorize and romanticize the body and be tremendously implicated in our perception of the body, happy with it, unhappy with it. And uh, that is, in other words, we're so identified with the body that when something happens to the body, it's as if it's happening to us, totally. We are the body. Now, since that's so strong, this is more or less of an antidote. It's also a lot of times largely used for celibate monks. It would not be skillful for many of us. 
and you can come to that balanced understanding of the body in other ways. If he also goes on to see the body as a combination of elements, earth, fire, air, water, uh, and I'll get at why all this is, why we do this, as well as there were cemetery contemplations where in ancient times you would actually go to, to charnel grounds and spend time with decomposing corpses. Uh, first of all, to overcome your fear of death, but also to begin to see the nature of this body. Uh, I actually was taken through that once with a real corpse, and it's quite valuable, although it's terrifying and repulsive at first. But if you have a good teacher, uh, they take you through it, and it's a little bit of help after it's over. Um, why bother with all this? Well, now, the whole point of Dharma practice is to get free. And so all of these practices, mindfulness practices of the body, have to do, they're in the service of non-attachment, of non-identification, and of letting go into freedom. If you totally identify with the body, and I'll give you a few examples of that, um, then uh, that in the, in the Buddhist scheme of things is, is, uh, is suffering, it's ignorance. That is, you actually think the body is you. You identify with it so thoroughly. Um, I think this, I'm always careful with this, but I never feel I do a good job because I'm conscious that some of you are so new and you might think, well, I don't want to learn that. I, I'm here to be happy and cheerful and and this guy's talking about pus and urine. And, uh, first of all, not everyone has to do it. But finally, what comes out of it, and also just the full attention to the body as, as you live your day out, is to come to relate to the body. It's a new relationship to the body as this body exists. There is this body. But, once, but if you're attentive to the body, what happens is the extra part where the mind starts spinning out what this body is and uses that as the nourishment. It feeds, its, it feeds this tendency to self, to create a sense of me. You want egocentric notion of who I am. Uh, what is the nature of the body, its size, its age, its shape, its health condition, its strength, its weakness, its so forth. They're not just descriptions of a physical process. They become a kind of, um, what is it when you apply for a job? A resume, you know, as to uh, how you're doing. And as you get older, you're, you're almost out of a job. I mean, the, the resume is not the one you want. The shape changes and etc. Um, this is a very different view of the body than most of us have. We, most of us begin by being totally and thoroughly identified with the body. Let me give you a few um, quotes. One purpose of our practice is to enjoy our old age, but we can't fool ourselves. Only sincere practice will work. I won't go into a great deal of detail uh, with that. Uh, let me give you the others because they're all really finally the same thing. Good, make good medicine from the suffering of sickness. In other words, the body is sick. What is this? The first one is by Suzuki Roshi. The second one is by Kyung Hyo, uh, a Korean Zen master. 
What do you mean make good medicine out of sick? It's horrible when you're sick. It's just a drag. And here's something, this uh, uh, one more. It is usually proclaimed eloquently that birth, aging, and death are suffering. If you've read any Buddhist books, you've seen it again and again. You don't have to read books. Don't, don't we all know that? Birth, aging, and death are suffering. And now this teacher, who is one of my teachers, Ajahn Buddhadasa, says, but birth is not suffering. Aging is not suffering. Death is not suffering. Where there is not attachment to my birth, my aging, my death. At the moment we are grasping, at the moment, we are grasping at birth, aging, pain, and death as ours. If we don't grasp, they're not suffering, they're only bodily changes. Um, what this is helping us to do, and there's so many other ways uh, that the practice helps us, you, one of the main meanings of insight meditation, of vipassana, is insight into the changing nature of all formations, mental and physical. Wherever you look, in nature or in your own nature, everything that arises is of the nature to pass away. It's an obvious observation. But we don't um, get it, just like not getting a joke. We don't get the deep implications of that. Everyone usually nods, we agree, but there are, there's increasing depth with which you can understand the truth of the fact that life is change. That's what it is. To be alive is to be changing really from moment to moment. Okay. Um, as you become more familiar with the body through practicing mindfulness, if you work with a teacher, often they won't emphasize seeing the impermanent nature of the body until you're uh, more established, somewhat established in having the mind a bit more calm and steady from breath awareness, also from paying attention in daily life wherever you're going. And then uh, as you become more at home with the body in this way, directly in touch, intimate with the bodily, with bodily life, then they begin to, to suggest, well, notice what happens to the body, how it's always changing. Not necessarily aging, sickness, and death. If you watch the body just right here and now, you can see the sensations are constantly changing. And uh, at a certain point, you do notice signs of aging if you're sick and so forth. Now, let's come back to the beginning, the body in the body, just the, the direct, intimate attention to the body. There, there are two basic kinds of insight when we use the term insight, like insight meditation. One is reflective, which I have a hunch everyone in this room is familiar with and knows how to do. It's the, the sensible, reasonable use of our an intellect, our reasoning, just figuring things out, seeing things and putting two and two together. And you can use Dharma principles that way, and it can be very, very helpful. You begin to see, oh, I'm, I want to remain the same forever, and I've changed. And you find yourself resisting the change and suffering a lot. And then you come to a talk, or you read it in a book, and then you see, oh, that's what that's about. Well, maybe if I don't hold on so tight, since I don't have a choice, the body must age. Well, my choice is this. I can keep fighting it to the grave, which goes on, or I can uh, get in harmony with the way things are. One of the main meanings of insight is to see the way things are. It's natural for things to change. It's natural for things to arise and pass, pass away. Nothing weird about it or special. It may be poignant when what we're talking about is us. It's not just seeing a leaf fall from a tree. Oh, look, at it, it's so beautiful. It's us who fall from the tree. 
It's a little bit different. Okay. But as more and more you come to relate to the body uh, in a friendly, loving, but direct way, uh, you're able to take care of it and in the process take care of yourself because you're now no longer uh, so attached, and some people break through altogether, so attached to everything that happens to the body uh, being an indicator of, of me. I'm getting old. I'm sick. Now, if you recall, well, many of you know this, the Buddha was gar- protected by his father. He didn't want him to become a spiritual teacher. He wanted him to be a, a, a ruler like himself. And he didn't, wasn't allowed to see aging or sickness or death. So he was indulged. And then the Buddha managed to see an old, sick, dying person and also a meditator and realized that he wanted to go to that place which is free of the obvious change and suffering that comes from an unexamined life, putting it in those terms. And step number one is to come to know the body, but you have to understand the relationship of the mind to the body. And that's what body and the body is helping you see this is the body. And then you begin to see how the mind creeps in and interprets what the body is, makes a picture of it, and then it's a whole drama. It's totally different. Insight, one of the insights is seeing that. And more and more uh, enjoying your life. That's why uh, Suzuki Roshi can say, you can enjoy your golden years. Not because you necessarily have a nice retirement plan. That's fine. But if you don't know how to relate to the aging process in a harmonious, wise way, you're going to keep comparing yourself to how you used to be and uh, how close you are to dying and uh, to your cronies who are, and so forth. I think we all know this. So it can save a lot of suffering, in short. Um, the Buddha's teaching... Wow, there's a lot of important stuff. I'll never get to it tonight. <laughs> I think I have to give a preview because I'd like to... The Buddha's teaching uh, comes out of, at first, his experimentations where he reacted to having such a protected life and became a very real ascetic, uh, where the body, in a sense, was viewed as an obstacle to human liberation. Uh, Not eating very much. uh, In a certain way, a disrespect of the body. Before that, it had been indulgence. Now it had been not to care for the body at all. Um, He came finally to the middle way, as you know, which if you go through... The Buddha doesn't say very much about health, a little bit, but he uses the word moderation a lot. And moderation in any realm can take you quite a long ways if you really explore what it means. Uh, And so that's mentioned. Although some of the practices that I've been through, both here and in Asia, did not seem to be moderation. So I think that this tendency to kind of uh, devalue the body in, the, in order to sacrifice it, who cares, in order to get something much more important, whether we call it enlightenment. Uh, we had a week, as some of you know, a week without sleep in Korea during the 45th day of a 90-day retreat. Uh, was it of some value? Yes. My ego got much stronger because I did it. Uh, <laughs> I had some wonderful hallucinations from not sleeping for seven days. But also my mind did become 
more stable at the end of it. And I saw, and I got was given some wise advice by my teacher, to, you know, to just take it a breath at a time, a moment at a time. Don't think of it as seven days and so forth. It was, it was manageable. But would I do it again? No. Would I inflict it on you? No. Not just because it's America and we want the good life, uh, because, but because I felt that I was really hurting the body, and it was not vague. Bodies need to sleep. Now, sometimes they can't. A crisis, an emergency, whatever, or uh, some infirmity. Uh, but this was intentionally depriving of it, and I felt it was quite harsh. And so, yeah, there was something that came out of it, but I'd rather uh, that one doesn't appear. I don't, to me, it's not moderation. It's not the middle way and so forth. What I want to do, I just need to give you a preview. Let's see. So there's enough time for questioning. We really have quite a ways to go. Because I want to relate this to the times that we live in, where there's now, uh, at least in my uh, experience of growing up in America, uh, an unprecedented interest in health, in uh, eating properly, in exercise, to the point of it becoming uh, a huge industry and business. Uh, well, I don't have to speak, you all know that. Uh, and a lot of that's good. Some of it is, seems a little bit as usual, crazy. Uh, journals that I've received, which are the journal of, um, what's it called? And anyway, they've invited me to, to, be, to subscribe to this journal, which is dedicated to the war against aging. And uh, yeah. uh, I don't want to sign up for that war. Uh, First of all, I'm not at war with aging. Uh, I'm doing things to help the body stay healthy. Maybe it'll help, maybe it won't. In fact, I'm a health faddist, probably more extreme than anyone in this room, with a few exceptions. I know a few. Um, I don't think I'm going to live forever, and I, and I, don't, I even know that I could swallow up all of bread and circus, and, I, and it doesn't matter. I could get sick anyway, which I do. I do get sick. Okay. Um, but there's a lot of good in it. That is, so what's been rediscovered is, in a way, the um, caring for the body. And uh, in certain spiritual traditions, particularly in yoga, but many of the people practicing here, uh, how many people in this room do some form of yoga? Sh show of hands. Look at that. Yeah. Okay. Now, whether you do, you know, the U.S. Marine Corps style or the slow, or you know. Uh, Whatever you do, good. And some of you are on the, you know, this stuff, I don't know what to call it. Or the, or the music with the stepping up and this Da-da-da-da, you know. Okay. Uh, a lot of it, it's helpful. Or jogging. The jogging is, uh, I've now seen there are two kinds of joggers. There, one is the joyless jogger, who's the, it's medicinal. You know, it sort of looks like this. And there are other people who love to run. They're just having a great time, just flying along. And it's very obvious if you watch. And I just feel like saying, oh, whatever it is you're trying to cure by jogging this joylessly, uh, give it up. I mean, this is worse than what you're trying to fix. <laughs> okay. Uh, many years ago, uh, some you know John Kabat-Zinn, many of you do have studied with him. 
Uh, he's a close friend, and we used to teach together at the old Cambridge Baptist Church. There was no CIMC, there was no IMS, uh, there was no Cambridge Zen Center. A, a lot of the Tibetans hadn't landed yet, none of that. <laughs> okay. Uh, and we had an evening once a week where I would teach meditation for about an hour and a half, instructions and sitting and walking, familiar to most of you. And then uh, Johnny would teach yoga for an hour and a half, hatha yoga. And then I would go to this little room, and whoever wanted an interview would come into the little room, and we'd talk over their practice, and then at the end of it, uh, we'd, we'd leave. So it was about a three-hour, a little bit more than three hours. We soon noticed that they were like the body folks and the mind folks. <laughs> it's like when the, the meditation part uh, was over, it emptied out. Maybe there were five people. There were a lot of people who would come, 90, 100. Maybe five stayed for the yoga. And the yoga people were fresh. They just came in. They didn't want to meditate. So there's some people who were just into the body, and others were into the mind. And they were a very relatively small number. And to us it was strange, because we'd been doing yoga and meditation as one thing. And it's always been that for me. And even health. It's not alien for me to... Uh, I don't see taking care of the body is anti-spiritual. It can be, and that's what I want to get into. Uh, why was the Buddha so careful with some of the, these exercises uh, to help you, in a sense, establish a proper relationship to the body? Uh, to get ahead of things, uh, if you do practices like yoga, like Tai Chi, if you start eating properly, if you start living, you know, eat the proper number of vegetables and fruits, you know, the, the whole thing, um, it's powerful. You're going to have much more energy. You're going to look better. Uh, you're going to feel better. People are going to compliment you. And it becomes intoxicating. And it has immense power. And it will very easily and quickly overwhelm whatever little wisdom you have. <laughs> okay. But does that mean you shouldn't do it? It just means you have to learn how to how to use those intelligent resources of proper nutrition and proper use of the body and breathing and so forth. And if you're a meditator, it's, it's potentially, at least, if used properly, tremendous asset, especially if you, you want to sit a lot. It's just much less pain, there's more energy, the breath is more vivid, and way beyond that as well. And it goes the other way. Some people become so in love with meditation that uh, they neglect their bodies to the, where it's painful. You can see it. Now, I'm not trying to say one, there's not one size fits all. Can you attain enlightenment without ever going into bread and circus? Of course. <laughs> no. uh, it's more uh, a way of living that um, is sane, balanced, and whole, and if used properly, can actually be helpful. If misused, it, uh, it undermines, it can undermine all of your hard work. Because, the med in fact, both can. The meditation and the yoga, for example, can all be in the service of ego. You have a nice, clear mind with a nice smile and good buns and, you know, your posture is great and people, what? You're a hundred years old. You you you, you only look about you only look about forty. Really? Oh. Uh, so there are a lot of pitfalls. Um, I'll leave you with this. 
In other words, I value both of them and the challenge for us because it's here. Many of you who come to the center are trying to take better care of your body and you also love to practice. Uh, how can we uh, weave those together? They really, I don't think we're ever meant to be apart, but how to weave it together so we don't get into this body folks and mind folks. No, I just think and I sit and I'm aware. I don't care about anything else. I just uh, look in the mirror all day. and I, uh, So that it's, it's a whole life because body and mind are. I mean, it's just not, it's not that, you know, it's pretty obvious. Okay. Uh, Krishnamurti, who has been one of my main teachers, finally, when the day of reckoning comes, it may be my main teacher because he never leaves me alone, even from the grave doesn't give me a moment's peace. He's very, set the bar, bar very high, those of you who know of his teachings. Uh, he did yoga. He was very devoted to yoga. And in this country in particular, he saw yoga has gotten separated from the wisdom. It's in the yogic tradition. You don't need to come over to Vipassana. Patanjali's path is a complete path with training in the mind, training of the body. But what's happened here is that... Uh, for whatever reason, the body and the breathing has become known as yoga. It's hatha yoga. It's one, it's one facet. Okay? And as a result, uh, there's virtually no real meditation. And now there's a tremendous um, interest, and I can tell you it's growing all the time, of yogis, hatha yogis, who want to learn Buddhist meditation. Because what the, Buddha, the Buddhists have been doing is meditating for all these years with their decomposing bodies. And the yogis are in a terrific shape, but they're suffering a lot because they're starting to see that even though I can stand on my head for five hours, I'm still going to get old, sick, and die. <laughs> so what to do? And so they're rushing, you know, uh, to Buddhist centers and their conferences and, you know, Maga Yoga Journal, the Buddha was a yogi. and uh, uh, so Krishnamurti was on the early wave of that, and he was very discerning, and he spotted it. So even though he was very devoted to yoga and to diet and to just living a natural, healthy life, he walked a lot and so forth. So I just remember two remarks. Once, when people would get very extravagant about yoga, remember, he loved it and appreciated it, uh, he would say, yeah, 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 no, yoga's okay. I mean, it's a bit like flossing. I, you know, you floss your teeth at night. It's just to be fit a bit, you know. It, it's... It has nothing, there's nothing much spiritual in it. And the person said, oh, okay. Or the best one I heard was someone um, very enthusiastic about yoga and, uh, and said, I understand you've been doing yoga for 30 or 40 years and I understand it brings a lot of energy and health and he kept using the word energy, much more energy. And Krishnamurti looked at him and said, that's true. More energy, more mischief. <laughs> so we're playing with dynamite here. Uh, meditation is very powerful, so is learning about the, the body very powerful. Can we use those as assets to get free rather than a new form of enslavement, camouflage as spiritual? So let's end it there.